Excellent. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Grant. I am one of the leaders here. And this morning we're going to be continuing in our sermon series that we do when we're here at Broadway. We're going to be looking at the commands that Jesus has given us as part of being a disciple of Christ. Um, part of that is, is learning and following his commands. That is what it means to be a Christian. So today, if you have your Bibles with you or your phones and Bible app, if you could scroll or click or turn to Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, that is, uh, well, that's where we're going to start. Let's put it that way. Um, I shall read it out from my notes. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, for those of you wondering, the command of Jesus is, enter through the narrow gate. Uh, that is what Jesus is, is telling us to do, is instructing us to do, and that's why we're focusing on this today. Um, and this particular passage is the peak. It's been, it's been described as kind of the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount. Through Matthew 5, all the way up to the end of Matthew 7, Jesus delivers this address, which... Uh, it's kind of split into to two major sections. The first section is Jesus pointing out or highlighting what the kingdom of God looks like. So what the people of the kingdom of God act like and live like, but also um, kind of what, how the kingdom of God is, is recognized. And then in the second section, we see a bit of contrasts, a bit of uh, Jesus is kind of saying, look, this is how you recognize who is in the kingdom of God. And so, um, the beginning section, we, we see Jesus' description in Matthew 5. I'm sorry, that was incredibly satisfying. Without any marker at all, I opened my Bible and got to Matthew 5. Uh, it's great. It's a good day. <laughs> um, Jesus talks about the people of the kingdom of heaven. He's contrasting that to the society around him at the moment. And he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, the meek, those who are self-sacrificing and put others first. This is what the people of the kingdom of heaven look like, which kind of contrasts the idea that people had at the time. You know, you had to be strong. You had to be powerful those who are meek and humble and putting others first, those are those, those are the people who are part of the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus talks about fulfilling the law. And he, he's, he's talking about sins like murder, anger, contempt, adultery, lust, divorce, oaths, and revenge, but he's contrasting that with loving your enemies. He's talking about how actually he is the fulfillment of the law. And he's contrasting this with the Pharisees who, who build themselves up, who make long and loud prayers to make themselves look good, who give so that everybody knows they're giving, and who fast 
and deliberately make it look like they are fasting so everyone knows they are holy and doing well. And then Jesus talks about building up treasure in heaven, about the kingdom of heaven being eternal, and how Andy was helpfully reminding us last month about actually let's, let's build up things that are eternal and not temporary. Jesus then talks about not judging and the specks in our eyes and ask, seek, and knock, and do to others as you have done to yourself. And all of a sudden, having described kind of the kingdom of heaven, having shown us what it looks like, he then has these verses where he says about the narrow gates. He says, enter through the narrow gates. So he has shown, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now enter into it. Enter through the narrow gate. And what, what I find interesting with this, now this is probably years of Sunday school that, or, or youth work that, that brought me to this point, but when reading about this, I often just naturally thought that actually this is the contrast between Christianity and, and the secular world or, or paganism. This is the contrast between kind of the church and, and those out there, the narrow gate and the wide gate. But actually, when Jesus is talking, he's, he's not talking to people in that context. He's actually talking to the contrast between the way of Jesus and the kind of the, the legalistic Judaism that there was at the time. This is actually, it's a contrast between grace and legalism when it comes down to it. This is what Jesus is contrasting and, and how the way of grace is actually the narrow gate and the way of legalism is actually this, this wider gate that everybody gets caught up in. And so, we're going to explore this today through uh, just a series of different questions and uh, hopefully answers. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to start with one thing that kind of occurred to me while reading this is, why is legalism the wide gate and path? Why is that the contrast? Because just looking at it or just thinking about it from, from a kind of cursory overview... I would have always said that legalism is the narrow gate because you're adding more rules. You, you have lots of things to obey, and therefore it's more difficult to obey, and therefore obviously it's, it's harder to get in that gate, surely. All these rules make it more difficult. But the thing is, I think there are, there are two things that happen in legalistic cultures that make it a wide gate, and those things are loopholes and comparison or judging. Now, now loopholes. Loopholes happen in every legal system. They are the way that we, could, we try and find a way kind of around the law, so it's still legal. It might not be ethical, but we're still okay. We're still on the right side of the law. And uh, I, think, I think a pretty classic example of how this works out is, uh, let's have a look at Matthew 5, verses 27, okay? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I'm not saying this is a typical blokish thing to do. Uh, I, I think this is something that actually both genders could struggle with, but the law there is do not commit adultery, Okay? Someone's gone, loophole. 
might not be ethical, but I can kind of push it as far as I can. I can, you know, I might not be committing adultery, but I can look at her and I appreciate a, a fine bottom. You know, it, it's, this is someone who's discovered a loophole. It's not ethical. It's not good. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not committing adultery, so I can push it as far as I can. They try and find a loophole to kind of get away with sin without necessarily breaking the law. And what we see Jesus doing here is kind of removing that loophole, tightening it up. There's also with loopholes, there's a sense of it doesn't matter if you break the law as long as you pay the price. Um, I remember somebody once saying that actually parking fines are just tickets for rich people. You know, if you're rich, you can park on a double yellow because a 50-pound parking fine doesn't really matter. You pay the price, whereas if you're poor, you can't park there because 50 quid will cripple you. It, you know, there's a sense of if you can afford the price, you can get round it. And then the other thing that comes about is comparison. And so comparison is, certainly in this context, comparison and judgment. It's like, that sense of I am better than someone else and therefore I am okay. We see, that, we see it in kind of first century Judaism quite a lot. We see the Pharisees being, um, making sure that they follow kind of these extra rules that they put in, that they pray, they pray more loudly so everyone can see how well they're doing it. So they can say, uh, thank you God that I am not like other men. They are comparing themselves to others and therefore, they feel better about themselves. And this is, I think this is something pretty prevalent in, in our culture today. I, uh, I work in a factory in Chesterfield. And so when I talk to my colleagues, the people around me, we talk about Christianity or, or we talk about actually heaven and death. The amount of people who kind of go, I'm going to be okay because I'm not a murderer. You know, that is the line of good person. Comparison there, you know, I've not killed anyone yet, and therefore I'm doing okay, I'm going to go to heaven. But then when we start talking about it, okay, well, where, where does that line stand? You know, how do we know this point is I'm good enough, and then this sin here, this is where I've crossed the line. Um, actually, the PA guys, this is probably the line here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, But comparison and loopholes make for a wider path because we all feel better about ourselves when we look at somebody who's doing less well. When we look at somebody who might have sinned more than us, and okay, reassurance, okay, I'm better than them, I'm probably getting in. And then the loophole is, you know, I can kind of do what I want as long as I stay roughly on the same side or, or the right side of the law or as long as I, I pay the correct price. And we, see, we actually see that in the sacrificial system as well where, you know, you, you can break a law and then you, you sacrifice a dove or you sacrifice a lamb. I've paid it. I'm good. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. There's that almost nominal approach to it. But what we see Jesus doing here is Jesus shows us that the issue is in the heart. 
It's not just in our actions. And so loopholes, well, actually, loopholes just show that you kind of want to break the law. You know, the, the heart hasn't been changed. You're just trying to stay on the right side. And comparison is, again, showing that we're quite happy to kind of condemn other people as long as we make it. The heart needs to change, and that is what happens in the kingdom of God. Because the Bible tells us that all of us sin. All of us have broken the law. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. God. And so most people fall into legalism, whether that's actually in a religious belief or whether that's in a, in a wider culture. There are laws and rules. This is what all of us fall into. And actually, I'd say it's probably our natural tendency. Um, I think for us as the church and for us as Christians, we have to be careful that we don't fall back into these things. And I'm jumping ahead wildly. There we go. So the next question to explore is actually, what is the narrow gate? And if it isn't pretty obvious from, from this Jesus is the narrow gate. And the way of grace is the narrow gate. Because what we've been singing about this morning, we've been, we've been praising, we've been glorifying a Savior who, who died for us as an atonement for our sins. That we, we are in free receipt of a gift that was given to us in order that we might be saved Now, in the, in the parallel verses to these in Luke 13, verse 24, it says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. How do we tie up making every effort and a gift freely given? Well, I think we have to make every effort to acknowledge Christ. We have to make every effort to make sure that we are walking by grace and in grace. Because how hard is it to admit that we have done absolutely nothing to deserve our salvation? We could so easily, and we, I think we do so easily, kind of go, well, you know, maybe in our heads sometimes, God saved us, but why wouldn't he? You know, you know, we're, we're charming, or we're, we're pretty well-skilled, or, you know, we can talk to lots of people. You know, why wouldn't God want to save me? But the reality is, he wanted to save you because he is gracious and he is good, not because there was anything special or unique about us that demanded it. But we, we always feel like we want to contribute to our salvation. And so I think... Passages like Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, they just, they just help us put it in perspective. They help us to stay humble and, uh, and meek. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a lot of grace in those verses. And Paul talks about how when we were living before Christ, we were dead in our sins. That was our legal status. That is where we were. And when someone has passed away and they're being revived, what does that dead person contribute to their revival? It's nothing. They, they can't save themselves. It is the same with us in our sinful nature. We were dead. We cannot lift ourselves up out of death. It is only by God coming and, and kind of pulling us and saving us, lifting us out of death into life through his grace. And actually, it's interesting that verse that us being saved by grace is going to be kind of proclaimed forever. It's going to show how great God is. Because part of it, I think, is going to be all of us marveling at how we didn't deserve to be saved but were. And so that is the narrow gate. It is coming to Jesus. It is accepting that we need him in order to be saved, that we can't do it ourselves. But actually, those verses, they don't just talk about a narrow gate. They talk about a narrow path. Because we become Christians. We acknowledge Jesus. But then we have to live a life. We have to go on living as Christians, which means things change. And so the next question is, how do we walk the narrow path? How do we continue to walk our lives in grace, outside of the law? Because often our first impulse, I think, is to add new laws to ourselves. We're Christians, we've got to do the Christian thing, so read your Bible every day. That is how you live a Christian life, and you have to do it. And if you don't do it, you've, you've broken some unwritten rule of Christianity. But that's, that's not how it works. 
We have to follow the narrow path. Now, I uh, hassled Andrew earlier to see if we could get a picture of, um, there we go. This is Striding Edge in the Lake District. Horribly named, frankly, um, because striding is not what you should be doing when you're trying to walk this path. And uh, this is usually the kind of image that is brought up when we are talking about following the narrow path. And I, I would say it is horribly wrong. I don't think this is what we should think about when we think about the, uh, the narrow path because it looks perilous. In fact, this, isn't, this is Helvellyn, and most years people die on this mountain because they slip off that path. And that is not how we should think of the narrow path. If we can cut that, please. Um, I think the narrow path is more like... Um, well, it's more like an experience I had this summer. So I, I, have a, I have a walk I like to do up at Derwent Edge. It's a couple of hours long. You park up by Lady Bower, you, get, you go up a hill, you walk along Derwent Edge and come round. And, uh, and this summer, uh, a colleague at work who does loads of walking said to me, if you just go like a little bit further than when you normally go, you, actually, you go down another valley, and it's, it's beautiful, it's brilliant. Um, I was like, great, looked at it on the map, looked fairly uh, clearly defined on the map. Uh, maps and reality differ, and so my walk went from a couple of hours to about six hours, 12 miles long, and in this particular, uh, this particular section, which my colleague had said was a lovely walk, um, he fibbed. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a nightmare. So there was this, there was like a really small path that occasionally you couldn't quite see where it was. Or if you thought, I'm not sure that's the best way, I'm just going to go around this way. And you'd find yourself thigh deep in bog water. And, and at other points of the path, you'd go, okay, I'm going to go to this side. And there'd be a hidden stream. And so I had one side rather clean, one side stinking by the, uh, by the time I was walking around. But actually, it was a narrow path, and there were issues either side. There were things that were hidden, but you could quite easily, relatively easily, get out of the bog, back onto the narrow path again. You could fall in the stream, suffer for a moment, but you could get back on the path again. And I think that's more how we need to think about the narrow path and how we walk. Because we will make mistakes in life. We will continue to sin. We, we are not sinless now, and so we will, as we walk, occasionally stray from the path. But God is gracious, and he returns us to the path. He speaks to us. He convicts us. But the way to do that isn't through more laws. Because the Bible, the Bible talks about law, and it says the law, is, the law highlights sin. It shows us where sin is. It shows us what sin is. But it kind of also makes more sin. And it makes more sin because we are by nature rebellious. And if you don't believe that, have you ever seen a sign that says, do not press this button? And what is your impulse? Because I know mine. It is, you know, 
steadily edging towards it. You kind of play the scenario, what, what would happen if I pressed it? I'm sure it'd be all right. What, just what does it do? It's that sinful part of us inside that just wants to disobey something. We want to press the button, even if it says don't. Because being under law means that we, kind of, we gain salvation by obedience. And all of us are disobedient. We can't do it. Whereas grace means that we've, kind of, we've already got our salvation. That is secure. That is firm. And then we work that salvation out in lives that are transformed. We don't live trying not to break laws. We live trying to please our Savior. Because once we were under law, and we were dead in that. When Jesus came, he died, and he he took the death that we deserved. Because the law said, if you're a lawbreaker, the punishment for sin is death. And so, when we put our faith in Jesus... We die with him. Where, where he died to the law, we legally, we died to the law too. And when we are raised with him, that law is no longer over us. We now live by the Spirit and not by the law. So what does living by the Spirit look like? It's using the Word of God inspired by his spirit, written down. And we also live, we are, well, we're charismatics, aren't we? God speaks to us today. But God will never speak in a way that defies his word. So we always have that sure foundation. We look to scripture, but we also know God speaking to us. And so the way of the spirit is we use his word to live we implement it. We can be convicted by him speaking to us. We live in a community with other people who can tell us, actually, your life doesn't match up to what God has said. It is to be a Christian. And so I think, finally, I, just, I want to look through Colossians 3. Because I think Colossians 3 works really well in dealing with some of the contrasts of, of living by the Spirit. Okay. Because it can be really easy to, when you think of living by the Spirit, it can be quite easy to go one of two ways, which is we say, you know, we have, we have the Word, and that's all we have, and therefore, we strictly, every single, how am I trying to say this? We create new rules built upon that, if that makes sense. We add laws that this doesn't necessarily say, but we add laws to make ourselves feel better or compare with other people. Or the other approach is, actually, life in the Spirit means I'm just going to sit back and do nothing, and the Spirit will transform me, and I'm just going to keep doing what I do. Whereas I think actually Colossians 3 deals with this quite well. 
So Colossians 3, 1 to 9 to start with, says this, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Paul is saying, because of our legal status, status, we have changed. We're no longer under the law. We are alive with Christ. We are under grace. We live by the Spirit. But we have to be proactive. We have to be proactive in walking in grace. We have to remind ourselves not to slip into legalism, not to slip into comparison and judgment or slip into kind of loopholes. We have to put the old way to death. Now, that is a very deliberate thing to do. If you're putting something to death, it's not just a neglect. You're, you're, you're putting something to death by deliberately making the choice that has to die. And the Bible actually tells us what, what the markers of our old self was, what it was like for us before we were saved. Those markers are sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. If we find ourselves angry a lot of the time, it's probably a good hint that we need to put that to death. If we find ourselves lustful, put that to death. If we find ourselves talking with fil filthy language, a bit sweary, put it to death. And we walk by grace because we know by the Spirit we can actually do that, whereas previously we could not. Previously those things were just part of who we were, whereas now we can put them to death. And the path of grace means that we will try to do that, and inevitably we will probably stray every now and then. We'll get thigh deep in bog water. But the graciousness of God is that he's already saved us. That's already done. So he picks us up and he puts us back and he goes, keep going. Keep walking on the narrow path. You're already saved. And so from Colossians 9 through to 17, 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 9 to 17, it says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in the previous section, we put to death. We put to death the old way, we put to death the old nature. In this section, we put on, we clothe ourselves with the new life. And this shows, actually, living by the Spirit brings that change. We clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We bear with one another. Life in the Spirit is life in community. How do we see that God is at work amongst us? We see it in our relationships. We see it in how we deal with other people. You know, we, you know, it's in a group of people, to be fair, in a group of about three people, you'll always get someone rubbing someone up the, the wrong way. There'll always be a personality clash. But how we deal with that is not it's not to exclude ourselves or to cut people away. How we deal with that is we forgive, we bear with one another, we love one another, so that we can see in the church the spirit at work. We can see grace at work. Just as we have been forgiven, so living as a community, living as the people of God, we see that grace amongst us. And that means not always doing what we feel. Sometimes we can feel angry or annoyed, but it's not always helpful to react how we feel. I, um, I, remember, I remember talking to uh, Arnold, who used to lead this church, and I was talking to Arnold about the prayer meeting on a Sunday night, and basically saying to him, it's a bit hard to come out again, isn't it? It's a bit of a faff on a Sunday evening. I just want to settle in. I don't feel like going out. And uh, Arnold surprising me with his bluntness in that he turned to me and he said, frankly, I would quite rather be sat by a fire with something rather strong to drink, but I know that it is good to pray. I know that it is good to join with the people of God in seeking him. And that has always stuck with me. That has always stuck with me because doing what I feel wouldn't necessarily bless the church or the body. Sometimes you have to make that hard choice. We want to live for God. We want to live in grace. Now, I don't get what I'm not saying. I'm not guilting you into going to the prayer meeting. I'm not trying to say, you know, this is another rule. You must attend. We're taking a register. That's not it at all. 
What I'm trying to encourage us to do and to see is that sometimes we have to make hard choices. We have to be deliberate in what we do in order to be a blessing. Sometimes that means doing what we feel isn't necessarily the right thing. And we have to take responsibility for that. I think in the same way, sometimes my kids don't like taking medicine. Um, you know, they see the Calpol syringe come out and off they go. They're not wanting to have anything to do with it. They would rather suffer. But we know, we know Calpol. Um, well, we know Calpol's a level below a miracle worker. It's, uh, it's incredible stuff. But we know that actually it benefits our kids to have it. And sometimes in life, that's what it's like for us. Sometimes we have to take our medicine. Sometimes we have to say, actually, I am not living in a way that reflects the kingdom. Sometimes my old self is coming to the surface, and I need to put it to death. And that is hard. Changing is hard. Doing something different is hard. But we do it because of the love for our Savior who has won our salvation for us. We don't do it because it is, our salvation is dependent upon it. Because we are already saved if we believe in him. Amen. I'm going to pray. And then we'll, then we'll sing.